Welcome to season two of Open Deeply, devoted to exploring the relationships society pushes into the shadows. Kinky love, non-monogamous love, neurodiverse love, and more. Jack Cornfield says to open deeply requires tremendous courage, a warrior spirit, and unconventional love takes just that. So, join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Now, season two of Open Deeply is a huge exploration of love and connections in so many forms. And we have been in an ongoing series about consensual non-monogamy. We are on part six today. And thanks to the amazing insight and knowledge of my co-host, Kate Lurie. And if you're not familiar with Kate, let me just give you the the quick rundown. You should be by now. If you're not, go back and listen to all the other episodes because this is part six, but you can also have it a la carte, whatever you want. So Kate is a sex positive licensed marriage and family therapist that specializes in non-monogamy, kink, LGBTQ, sex worker communities, etc. Kate is also a certified sex educator, an EMDR certified therapist with training in the trauma resiliency model She's been practicing since 2003 and has been featured in all sorts of media outlets and really cool places. And the latest is Kate is the author of the new book, Open Deeply, A Guide to Building Conscious, Compassionate, Open Relationships. Yay! Before we get started, let me just give the quick reminder. First, I'm just giving a plug to us, Kate, because this is part six, as I mentioned. And if listener, you're like, oh, I haven't, I haven't listened to the other. Like I said, you can listen to this a la carte, but I highly encourage you to go back and listen to all the other parts. Last time we talked about maintaining connection with a non-monogamy. So, you know, the threats to our connections, there were three pillars of connection, which were fabulous connection rituals, types of outside the box, sexual connection you can have, lots of great stuff. Go listen. And one last reminder, This podcast is not therapy or a replacement for therapy. If you find things coming up as you're listening to our conversation, please practice your own self-care. Okay, we got all the stuff out of the way, Kate. We can do it. Yes, thank you. All righty. So maybe the two of us should start this episode with just talking about our own coming out stories. For me, it was a bit of a journey. So, you know... In my backstory, as some of you know, I had an 11-year monogamous relationship. I came out to L.A., started in a program to get my second master's, my master's in marriage and family therapy and a focus in art therapy. And the first person that I came out to was my therapist. Mm -hmm. When I came to L.A. in 2002, I met my partner, Richard, who would end up being my husband and partner for 13 years. We quickly became non-monogamous. I didn't tell anybody in my program. Back then, I was fearful that it would end up ruining my career. And I was fearful of, you know, like my family finding out. I just thought it would have this huge detrimental effect. And just keep in mind the context. This is back in 2003, where things were way different in, in certain ways. You know, I didn't even know about the ethical slut. 
So I felt very much in a vacuum, very isolated. I told my therapist and it just felt like, I remember telling her it felt like removing a grapefruit sized tumor just to tell her, you know? And of course, as things progressed, we had a bazillion friends. You know, we started out as swingers and later on became poly, but we had a bazillion friends nationwide because, you know, Richard was a photographer for the lifestyle. So we, we ended up having friends nationwide. So very soon I didn't feel so isolated. Later, I ended up telling a couple of friends at the clinic that I worked at. This was before I went into private practice. Again, I was worried that they would, you know, they could have had a negative reaction. They could have told the director of the program, I could have lost my job, you know, who knows what could have happened. So that was a huge thing to tell them. And that went super well. And they, if anything, it made our friendship closer. And then when I started my private practice, even before I started my private practice, I had people hiring me because they wanted a therapist that walked the walk, you know, and they knew I was non-monogamous. So at that point, you know, I just, I started to realize so many people had sexual shame and that it was important for me to model not having shame. And so for me, in... (laughs) you know, no judgment of other therapists and their decisions. But for me, it felt like if I was in the closet, even part way, that I wasn't modeling what I wanted to model, I wanted to model someone who did not have sexual shame. So I started to change my website, I started to just quickly come out. And then it's funny, the last person that took me to the point of being 100% out. I didn't, I didn't come out to that person until last Christmas. And that was my mother. Wow. And the reason I didn't come out to her was was because, you know, I was scared that that might have a negative impact on her emotional health, you know, and she's 82 years old. And and she's in a small southern town. And I was worried that might have some kind of detrimental impact on her. I thought she might be worried about, you know, if people found out about this daughter that's all over the internet. I thought it might have an adverse impact in the community that she lives in. Like for all these reasons, I tried to kind of protect her and she wasn't on the internet. She's one of these people that's not on the internet at all. So it was easy to hide it all this time, even though I am all over the internet. And then (laughs) I was at Christmas and she just happened to overhear something. The whole story is kind of funny, but for time's sake, I won't go into it. But yeah, and then she reacted really supportively. And yeah, and it actually was this wonderful experience that made me a lot closer to my mom. So I've been lucky. Not everybody has that golden coming out story. Yeah, yeah. I'm listening to your story like, ooh, like when you came out, you know, at work as your public persona and you started changing your website, was it as easy as you just said? Was it like, oh, and so then I, or were you like, oh my God, oh my God? Like, were you terrified as you were starting to put stuff up on your website and coming out in your public life? You know, I think the most terrified I was was in the very beginning, you know, like coming out to my two coworkers and to my therapist partially because I didn't have a lot of power. You know, it's like I was married to an artist, we were living paycheck to paycheck. If I got fired from that job, living in Los Angeles, where it's super expensive, that could be dire. And so that was really terrifying. By the time I was coming out in my practice, I was financially solid. The community had my back. 
if there was some adverse reaction, it was way easier for me to weather it at that point. And I think that is something that anybody in their coming out journey needs to think about, which we can talk about more today. Is it safe for you to come out? And what is your position of, uh, how should I put it, power or what have you? Like, certainly, if you're living with your parents, and your parents are bigots, and you're living in Kansas, you know, or some small town, it, it might be actually dangerous. So, you know, I could be way more bold because of all the circumstances in my life that gave me the privilege to kind of easily come out. But yeah, cer- certain points were a lot scarier than others. You know, it's interesting because like you, I came out later in life. And it, when now in sex positive communities or through my work, I am surrounded by the vast majority of people who just knew like the minute they started their adult dating or sex life, they knew like, oh, I'm non-monogamous or I'm kinky or, you know, whatever their non-normative, you know, sex and relationship status was. And I feel like I was kind of a late bloomer because it took me a minute, you know, it took me till what my mid thirties ish. And for me, I had a you know a lot of stuff I had to work through about relationships and my identity and I didn't even know who I was or where to even begin figuring all of that stuff out and when I think about my coming out I couple my non-monogamy with my kinky self with my queer self they're all kind of a package deal and they all happened at the same time and In the 90s, I was in my first long-term relationship, and I didn't have any examples of kinky people, of queer people, of non-monogamous people. It was like one of those secrets. I knew that a friend that I, I had, that her family were swingers, and that maybe she was a swinger too, but like she didn't talk about that part of herself with the our friend circle, you know, so it was always this like, in whispers, what's all that about? I don't, I don't want to ask, I don't want to, you know, so that was the only exposure I'd had to non monogamy or anything non normative. And of course, there were also people going, Oh, I heard, you know, her family's that's weird. Oh, that's strange. How can they do that? So there was all the negative stuff. But I was intrigued, I couldn't tell anybody. And I had brought up to the partner at that time, I was like, Hey, I didn't feel the swinger vibe. And I didn't know I, I had a choice in non monogamy. I wasn't really driven by the sex with other people, although that's nice, but that's not my main driver. It's just the connection with different people is what I like. And, um, you know, I was like, hey, what if we were to, you know, kind of open up our relationship? I didn't have the words. I didn't have the framework. He flipped out. Oh, my God. Uh, I was like, okay, I pretend I never said that. And that was it. I got shut down. I got shamed. It was like, don't you love me? How could you even entertain that thought? Oh, my God. Uh, And I was like, okay, never mind. And then years went by, you know, probably another 15 years went by. 15. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I had found myself single again. And I was like, you know what? I had learned at this point kink is a thing. I didn't really know much about non-monogamy. I knew about queerness, you know, and I was over that time 
coming out to myself, which that was my major process. Like, like, who am I? What is this part of me? How can I parse it out? How does it match with everything else? How do I make it work in my life? And then when I met my current partner, I had finally gotten to the point, like, I want to do the kink. I'm queer. I'm dating women. I'm dating people of all different genders. And I never want to have a non-monogamous relationship again. Any relationship I get into is going to be non-monogamous from the start. And the thing that helped me the most, you had mentioned you had the support of community behind you. And for me, that was everything. Had I had the internet in the early 90s or mid 90s or whatever, and found those communities at that time, and found someone modeling that sort of lifestyle or existence or identity or whatever, it would have been a lot easier. I felt like I was on my own. I felt like I was inventing this in my own head. I didn't know other people did it. So for me, that was everything. So then when I did finally come out, it dovetailed with me switching careers and becoming a sexuality educator. So it was a natural fit. I have a very small family, or at the time I had a very small family, but that changed. I basically had one living relative at that point. It was like the 2007-ish. And, you know, I was cool being myself. I also had kids. I did not mention it to my kids because they were young. And it was like, first of all, I haven't even figured this out yet. So how am I going to explain it to you? Second of all, it was like on a need to know age appropriate basis. Like, it's not like I was non-monogamously dating someone who was going to move in and become a part of my life. So it was like small children don't need to know this right now. Maybe one day, but not now. And it was fine. I lost one friend who was a really good friend in high school. I was the, you know, maid of honor in her wedding and the whole day. And it was, I got a nasty email, like, how could you, you have children. This is so dirty and horrible and immoral. And I had never really known her to be like that. You know, it's not like she was super religious or so. She always seemed open-minded. So that kind of threw me. I was like, what? okay, bye. But that was it. You know, I was fine. And then when it came to family, I acquired a huge family, you know, through DNA tests and finding my siblings and all of that stuff. And I met them publicly out as my public persona. And even though I know there's like some whispers, there's also some like, hey, that's that's kind of good. You know, let me tell you a secret. I was in a, I don't, nobody else knows, you know, like that sort of thing. So I'm like, okay, they may not all talk about it with each other, but most of them are on board. Yeah, the last person I came out to was my uncle, who he is my, el- he's passed away now, but at the time, my elderly uncle, who the last couple of years of his life, I was his caregiver. He moved in with me. He is a gay leather man. Mm-hmm. So you would think, right? You would think that like he was there at, you know, the, the first gay bars opening in the Gold Coast in Chicago. Like he has lived the leather history, which is awesome. And he's very out, especially for such an older, more traditionally raised person. He has no qualms about saying this is who I am. And it's funny that I was like, I don't know how to bring this up to him. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It is. It really is. And it, it was like, 
even though he was open and he was leather, he was also, you know, he's the greatest generation. He was born in 1927. And there is a part of him that is still very old school and old fashioned and kind of misogynistic. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point is just because someone's open minded in one vein does not mean that they're open minded in another, you know, or just because somebody believes in like, say, social justice equity for one group does not mean that they believe in social justice equity for everybody. It's really interesting how humans can compartmentalize like that and then not generalize logic. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So even though he was open-minded, there was still a part of him that was judgmental specifically over the things that I, you know, qualities that I possess. So I was a little nervous. And again, it was a need-to-know basis. And shortly before I was his caretaker, we went to IML together, which is like the biggest gay leather convention in Chicago. And I was like, look, you know about my TV show, you know about my career, I'm kinky. And immediately, you don't know about, oh, there are things that go on in those gay bars that are that no woman should ever see. You would be shot. I'm like, no, Uncle George, you don't understand. You know what I'm trying to tell? <laughs> like, I do some really freaky shit. You're like, he didn't get it. And so then when he moved in, I was like, okay, I, I need to break it to him that I'm non-monogamous. And again, he's been non-monogamous his whole life. But I'm, I'm his, you know, innocent female niece that I thought he was going to be like, oh, you know, your husband, he's going off cheating on you. And, you know, you have no say, you know, that sort of attitude. And at first he was like, hmm, because we had partners come visit the house. So it's like, okay, we have to, you know, tell him. So like, okay, we have an open marriage. We're not monogamous, this and that. And he, you know, kind of looked. And he was like, hmm, so how does that work? You know, he asked a few questions. And he's like, oh, so Ken has a bunch of girlfriends. And I was like, I know where he's going. I'm like, no, I am also, you know, oh, so you both. Hmm. It took him so yeah. long to wrap his head around it. And then, you know, after like, you know, a 10 minute conversation of him just like trying to parse it out, he was like, Okay. well you're making me think of certain things that now that you say that you know going back to one thing that you said I also didn't well you said you had one person from your childhood that you kind of knew that was non-monogamous but you just didn't ask them about it I didn't have anybody like the only thing that I saw were like those seedy things on tv like some documentary on tv that would paint like non-monogamous people in the worst kind of light like for like it was when it was first brought up to me I immediately pictured and I think I saw this very thing in some icky documentary where it was just like like an old 70s van with the green shag carpet and the guy with the big chain around his neck and the (laughs) fishbowl Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's all lascivious and his downtrodden wife that's being forced into these things is behind them. Like, that's the kind of thing I had in my head, not because I just make pulling the stuff out of my ass, but because I literally saw stuff like that on TV. But I didn't know anybody personally that had been non-monogamous. So when it was brought up to me by my soon-to-be husband, now ex-husband, I thought it was just crazy talk. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then you're, you're talking about the judgment. And so that made me kind of run through my head 
So nobody was directly bigoted towards me, but what would happen, like when I was getting trained in something called EMDR, which is a trauma modality, I needed, like after the didactic training, I had to find a supervisor would oversee, you know, like while I'm doing EMDR, this would be someone I I would meet with until I got certified, right? And so I kind of interviewed several people and, and just would say, you know, so a lot of my clients are non-monogamous and these are the populations I serve. And so many times there was bigoted things that were said. They would, I remember one person was just like, well, you know, Kate, you know, you can't help what these people do. And, you know, (laughs) like assuming that it was just a pet hobby of mine, you know, like there was many times either in one-on-one conversations or even with therapists that were on a stage speaking about non-monogamy where they would say bigoted things. So that's when I've experienced the bigotry was was by leaders in the psychotherapist community. Not to say that all leaders are like that. There's plenty of open-minded people. But, but you know, that's why it's so important. And I'm so glad that you as a therapist chose to come out and let your clients know that you walk the walk. And I know speaking you know, with other therapists who belong to various identities that are outside the norm, you know, it's something that they wrestle with from like a professional and ethical perspective, like how much do I divulge? And that's one whole side of it. And that's a very valid side of it. But from the client's point of view, I look for therapists who walk the walk because there's plenty of therapists that say like, I'm kink friendly. I'm non-monogamy friendly. I'm, you know, queer friendly. But they have no, they've never had any connection to those identities, whether it's their own or even people very close to them in their own lives. So they only know the stereotypes. So in, you know, on one side of their mouth, they're like, oh, I'm so open minded to blah, 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 blah. But then on the other side of their mouth, they're saying these really bigoted things and they don't even realize that they're bigoted. Yeah, don't and even realize. Yeah, yeah. I always say to, to folks, I'm like, when they're trying to decide, I, a lot of times I'll say, well, here's an analogy for you. Imagine you want to go to Rome and you're looking for a tour guide to take you to Rome. You can choose amongst different tour guides. But if you could choose between two that were that were good, one had never been to Rome and one had, which would you choose? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little similar to that. I mean, with, with non-monogamy and kink, it's just like there's things that there's no way that you can understand unless you've gone through it. Right. There is no way that you can just read about it and have that felt sense in your bones and emotionally of what it's like. Mm-hmm. I think anybody who's non-monogamous or kinky, there's times that... You know, before they did a particular thing, they thought, oh, I'm not going to be jealous at all or it's going to be fine or or maybe the opposite. I, I, you know, I don't think I can do this or whatever it is. And then they have the experience. And on the other side, their feelings and emotions are quite different. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. And I want to throw out there for folks listening who are like, I want to find a therapist that walks the walk. I don't know why I gave our listeners the Muppet weird voice, but that's all your voices, listeners. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom maintains the CAP. The, it's the Kink Aware Professionals list. And a lot of folks on that list are also non-monogamy competent and, you know, walk the walk in their real lives. And that list, by the way, isn't only therapists. It's all sorts of different professionals, whether it be attorneys and, you know, plumbers and all sorts of people. I know there is also a poly and non-monogamy therapist list, and I can't remember the name of it offhand, but I'll look it up so we can put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, exactly. You you know, you don't have to struggle. There's directories like that that are great. It's unfortunate they named it CAP, right? Because it is way more than just kink aware. It's a great resource. But you know, when you think about coming out, there's so many things to discuss. I mean, one thing that I'd say is a really strong benefit of coming out is is just being authentic. I think being authentic in your life is one of the great keys to happiness for a lot of people. Not all people. Some people like a little naughty secret. <laughs> Certainly, I've heard a million swingers say that, that they that they like that little naughty secret. But to just like be able to be authentic as you move through life is I find such a big gift. Like for me, as I became more and more authentic over the course of my life, I could literally feel it in my body, like an openness in my body. So that's one thing I'd say, you know, some other benefits to coming out when you're out, you can speak freely about your life. And non-monogamy may extend way past the confines of your sex life. For a lot of folks that become non-monogamous, it it also includes your friends, your community, your activities and loved ones. It literally may occupy at least 30% of your life. So if you have all of that in the closet, a lot of times it's not just your sex life that you have in the closet. It's like all this stuff. And it can become more and more of a burden over time as it becomes more and more part of your life. And usually these are the folks that end up being your people. And so, uh, you know, for a lot of folks, they end up wanting to come out. And, And another thing that I'll have to say, just as a caveat, is I think a lot of times people think of coming out as almost like a binary. And that's not the case. You know, just like our two stories illustrated, you can slowly come out to people, right? You do not have to come out all at once in some big Facebook announcement. You can slowly choose who to come out to, you know, and you can test people out to see who is deserving of your vulnerability, right? You know, I I talk to, you know, some of my clients that are, say, sex workers about this, where I'm like, All you have to do is go up to your Uncle George and say, oh, did you see that show on sex workers on, you know, that TV? And if if Uncle George is like, ah, they're a bunch of whores, then maybe (laughs) maybe Uncle George isn't someone that you you say that you're you've been doing sex work to. You know, he hasn't earned your vulnerability. He hasn't earned that privilege. Yeah. And and the, the whole living authentically thing, I know that's such like a catchphrase these days that it's kind of lost meaning but one of the things you said about like wanting that sometimes some folks like get off on that dirty little secret like that's the thrill for them you can still do that and live authentically it's like you know there's some folks i see that have the dirty little secret and they try to deny it and then it comes out in weird unethical hurtful ways and there are some folks who are like no 
my thing is the dirty little secret. So let's figure out how to get that dirty little secret without really fucking things up. You know what I mean? Like, And that's authentic. And, you know, one of the things about living authentically for me, it took me a while to realize this is like when you're not living authentically, you harbor that shame and shame is a means of control. Like when people live in shame and they can't access their full pleasure potential, their full authenticity in their self-identity, that keeps us from growing. That keeps us from going after whatever we want in life. It keeps us under the thumbs of maybe people in our lives that are emotionally controlling us or manipulating us or, you know, using that shame to keep us in check. And also by larger society, you know, by so many different larger systems, Getting rid of that shame and living authentically bleeds over into every area of your life and can make it better. I mean, granted, caveat that it's not dangerous for you to come out in whatever situation you are. But, you know, in the that ideal, you can come out, nothing really bad's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, I would love to team up with somebody to do like some research on sexual shame related to some of these big sweeping things, you know, because I have so many things to say about this. And you and I have had a million discussions, but I could go into capitalism and patriarchy. And, oh, my you know, God. Politics. It's, 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 it's all wrapped up. It's all I'd love in the to write bucket. a book on this. Yeah, exactly. I'd love to write a book on this, mm-hmm. you know, and I will have to say that for I've seen some clients where they are so in their shame that they, and maybe they have a very intense kink that the society frowns upon. So way beyond just a little bit of spanky, spanky stuff, you know, and they are not telling anyone, maybe I'm the first person they've told. And so what I find is when you don't talk to anybody about your sexual proclivities, that's when it sometimes turns twisted and detrimental to yourself or others sometimes you know like having at least one person to talk about gives us this air and allows you to bounce things off another human and even one other person can help you have a sexual identity that is is the opposite of that you know instead of being harmful to yourself or others is actually something that is good for you and good for other people you know or at least neutral so there's that and then you and I have talked about how I mean I just believe that either consciously or unconsciously right-wing religion and right-wing politics have on purpose instilled sexual shame and the reason you know to puppeteer the masses and and, you know and I've talked about how I first noticed that some of the folks with riddled with sexual shame didn't just distrust their feelings about sexuality and, and thought they might be a monster at any turn sexually, but also just didn't trust themselves across the board. And that's when I realized, oh, if you can instill sexual shame in someone, you can puppeteer a person, a community or a or a country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, you know, I talk about this. I teach a class on erotic humiliation and we break down like the different types of shame and embarrassment and, you know, all sorts of different levels. There's a whole spectrum. And when you get to shame, that is the type of thing that 
makes you personally feel that you've been devalued at your core as a human being, that you are not good enough. You are, you know, you have flaws of your fundamental character. That's what shame does to you. And like inside your own head, you cut yourself down. I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me. I am fundamentally flawed, yada, yada, yada. And if we're walking around carrying all of that stuff in our heads that gives us that self-talk like, I'm a fucked up person. I blah, 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 blah. Well, of course, out in the larger world, we're not going to move through with confidence. We're not going to move through going I am good enough and I do deserve X, Y, Z. And hey, I am being exploited and taken advantage of. And hey, I do have power to say no to you or to change these things that seem so much bigger than me. Like if you're walking around cutting yourself down thinking you're not good enough and there's something wrong with you all the time, how are you going to be that person that's going to go out and stand up to the bullshit? So that's directly how it relates to all of these systems and right-wing politics and, you know, all that stuff. And they know they're smart. Yeah. We should do just an episode on shame. We haven't done that yet. And that person just is incredibly lost. And usually that uh, oftentimes that person that feels so lost will go right back to the system that instilled the sexual shame in the first place as their guiding light. Cause it's validating. Yeah. All right. So let's swing Ooh. back. Let's see. We, yeah, we, that's, got, we, into, could, we got deep. <laughs> and we just skimmed the surface and we got deep. That is the biggest topic that I can mm-hmm. get on my high horse about. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Let's see. Okay. So, you know, when we talk about opening up, another thing is, you know, if you're non-monogamous, you may feel like it's more of your orientation. It's not just something that you do for fun on the weekends. You may feel like it's your orientation, your identity. And if it lands that heavy and it's not just something you're doing for fun, here and there, then it might get harder and harder not to come out, you know, because you're hiding something that's so integral to your, to your nature. So, you know, going back to like some of the benefits of coming out, one thing that we already mentioned is that you're normalizing non-monogamy. So you're normalizing something that the general populace has a lot of bigotry towards. And so when you normalize it, it opens the door. If you have the privilege, it allows you to come out. You're normalizing something that allows other people to come out. People that are less privileged than you will be more likely to be able to come out if it's normalized in society. You could argue that you're doing a good deed. You're doing something for yourself, but you're doing something that has a ripple effect that can be helpful to others. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Yep. And then the other thing I'd say is that you may find that you want to come out because you find it honoring to your other partners. If you are just out and you're just sharing maybe say a nesting partner or the partner you live with, but you have someone else you love that no one knows about, um, even if that person intellectually understands your circumstances, their heart may not understand. Their heart may feel sad that they're not invited to Thanksgiving or Christmas or what have you. You know, these other partners that you're not talking about can find it hard to be in the shadows, you know? So being able to come out can be really honoring to your other partners. Again, if you have the ability to do it. So that brings us to the question of should, should you come out? And there's, you know, different things to think about. I think Dr. Elizabeth Sheff does a good job, you know, asking some key questions. Is it relevant, appropriate 
and necessary and safe to come out to a person or in this situation. So, you know, is it appropriate? Like, again, for me, I had to think about my mom, you know, it wasn't just about me and being out to the world and how that would feel good. I had to really think about her health and how that would affect her and her community and, and all of that, you know, is that appropriate? And then is it necessary? Like for swingers, we keep talking about swingers. A lot of swingers, they are just sexually non-monogamous. They're not romantically non-monogamous. So a lot of times there's not these other partners that are being, you know, feeling disrespected or something. And they enjoy having a little secret and all that. So it's just not really necessary. It's just sexual fun. And then uh, we've already mentioned, is it safe? So if you live in a town that's full of bigotry or you're, or you're living with your family still and they might kick you out if you were to come out, there's a lot of situations where it might not be safe to come out. These are like three heavy hitter considerations that I really encourage people to think on. Do you have any feeling thoughts, feelings about that? I mean, that nails it, you know, and I think that that is illuminated in our stories. Like, is it appropriate? Is it necessary? Right. And I think of like, is it necessary? Even with my uncle, you know, it's, a, it's not like I wasn't safe. Appropriateness. Yeah, that also played in there. You know, it was on a, a need to know basis. Like, am I just going to come out and blurt something out about my private life? that has no bearing on our relationship at that moment that, you know, he's older, like, like your mom, you know, he might feel some kind of way. It might, whatever. I don't want to get him riled up for no reason. But then when it became necessary and appropriate, it was like, okay, now's the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it went much better. I think a lot of times we, it's a very delicate balance because like with my uncle and like with your mother, we both, I don't know, maybe catastrophized a little bit. Like we were just like, worst case scenario, they're going to be judgmental. It's going to ruin everything. They're emotionally going to be distraught. And, and they were both like, okay, cool. Like, and we're like, that, really? That's it? Okay. So, you know, are we the best judge of reactions? You know, and that, and that, you're a therapist. So that's slippery slopes into like, you know, when are we trying to, I don't know, control somebody's emotional reaction to something? You know, that's a whole delicate balance. It's a whole nother episode. But, you know, those are personal things that if in whatever personal situation I have, you have, listener has, that comes into play, something to think about or talk about with your poly or, you know, non-monogamy knowledgeable or walk the walk therapist. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much we could talk about there, but I have a few things that I still want to talk about within this session or this episode. So let's talk about emotional care while we're coming out to someone. So the three things that I'd like to talk about under that umbrella is doing practice runs in preparation before you come out, grounding techniques that you can do before, during, and after, and then finally, self-care after you've done the disclosing and you know that it's done, right? With practice runs, you can literally imagine, you know, talk to a friend and do a dry run with a friend before you come out to your Uncle George or whoever it is, you know, you can 
talk in the mirror or whatever, you can anticipate some of the questions that they might ask. Some of the things that I hear from secondhand from folks that have come out are things like, you know, that the person hearing that their loved one is non-monogamous, you know, that their relative is non-monogamous, whatever, are things like, so are you being manipulated, pressured into this or exploited by your partner? Or are you pressuring your partner into this? You know, like for people that have a bigoted idea about non-monogamy, they have a tendency to project this idea that there must be something insidious, something, you know, evil going on in order for this to be taking place, like some kind of manipulation or pressure or exploitation by either you or the people that you're dating. Mm -hmm. They might ask, how can you participate in such an immoral, sexually deviant behavior? They might have a lot of, you know, again, bigoted opinions. They might say, what about the children? You know, and think that, assume that you are telling your children or even that your children are witnessing things that are not age appropriate, which may be entirely false. Do we have to meet your other partners? Again, that's kind of coming from a place usually where they are hoping that this will all go away and that you're just in a fad and, and that they can just kind of bypass this, which is often not the case, especially if you have you know, more than one partner that you love dearly that you want to have coming to the Thanksgiving dinner, right? Or to the or, or Christmas, you may not celebrate Thanksgiving, or, you know, whatever your holiday is. Is this just a phase? And how will I explain this to other family members? Like the person hearing this might think, oh, well, now I have to have conversations with other family members. And they regard the whole thing as a burden, when really, maybe they don't need to t- take on as much as all that. So, you know, if you can sort out what you might say to some of these typical questions in advance, then you won't be so blindsided when they're asked of you. Do you have any thoughts on just practice runs and things that? Yeah, you know, all of this is is spot on. And I think, you know, for us to just remind ourselves where that other person's head is, you know, they may have no idea what non-monogamy is, no idea about the ethics and the consent and all of these things that we know that we're like, well, of course, that's fine. It's logical. It's fine. It's consent. In their minds, the only outside of a relationship, you know, sex or other relationships they know is cheating. And that's like, oh my goodness, you're being exploited. Like you were saying, being taken advantage of. It means something is wrong with your relationship. You're one step away from divorce. There is fighting. There is There are tears behind closed doors. Like that's what they're imagining. So just to kind of, you know, for me, it's like orient myself to like, okay, this is what's in their head. And what can I say to counter that in a way that they can understand at the level that they are and at the knowledge that they have. Yeah. And and I think while you're anticipating all that, even before, you know, while you're in that practice phase to say to yourself, what is my intention? Like, is my intention to step into this and try and continue to be a loving person? Or is my intention I'm not going to be steamrolled by a relative who can be 
abusive in their response to this. So I'm, I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm going to give myself self-love by not being ran over by this person. You know, like whatever your intention is, I think it's good to, to be clear on that before you even open your mouth. So then it becomes an anchor that can hold you throughout the conversation, which moves us to grounding techniques. So, you know, everybody can look into their heart or do a Google search and find the best grounding techniques for them. You know, of course, deep breathing is great because you can do that even while you're having a hard conversation. Some people meditate, sometimes people practice mindfulness, like whatever your grounding is. And I would encourage you to have a few, like at least one grounding technique that you can do during the hard conversation where the other person doesn't even know you're doing it, like deep breathing. What works for you in a hard conversation? Do you have like a grounding thing that you do? God, my grounding things are weird. I don't know. Maybe it's my (laughs) neurodivergence. Like I just like try to keep the focus on the logic. (laughs) Uh Like, like keep the focus on the logic. Keep the focus on the logic. That's what I do. That probably doesn't work for most people. But yeah, I go I go cerebral instead of breathing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, everybody has to figure out what works for them, you know, um, and a lot of people go logical and, and, and you know, my feelings, you know, I'm very much a somatic psychotherapist. So, you know, but, you know, and you mentioned the neurodiversity. So a lot of the things that I might lean towards with, you know, I, I always talk about the a full anchor, our full internal compass is our thoughts, our, our emotions and our body sensations working in tandem from a grounded center place. That's what I always lean towards. And you've always kind of said either directly or, or in a softer way, well, that might not always work exactly perfectly for neurodiverse folks, which I have a lot of friends with some kind of neurodiversity, et cetera. I don't think I do have neurodiversity. So it may be something that I don't completely, I, I will say this, I'm kind of going off on a little tangent here, but people that are neurodiverse like me a lot. They show up in my practice and all of that. So I think I probably understand people with different neurodiversity better than the average bear. And I've certainly read up on it. Yeah. But there may be a little piece that I don't have a felt sense on. Yeah. For me, you know, I'm a very hyperverbal person and very rooted in patterns and logic. That's how I navigate the world. So for some people, like grounding yourself in your body and doing those somatic techniques, which I mean, sometimes that does work for me. I'm not saying that never works. But like for a lot of folks, like that's their step one. And that helps like calm their minds so they can like bring in the logic and think about things clearly. For me, I orient and ground myself by grasping onto the logic and the pattern and and verbalizing that. And once I can parse that out in my head, that helps ground me in my body. It's almost opposite. You're top down. You're still doing the same thing, Mm -hmm. but you're top down rather than bottom up. Once I can parse that out in my head, my body relaxes. If I try to relax my body, my head's still like, but oh my God, like I have to take care of that first. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Everybody has to figure out what works for them. And then, you know, after you come out, you know, and you've gone back home or you, you reach that point where you know it's over, like what kind of self-care are you going to do? Maybe you even reward yourself for doing something that was hard. Maybe you go take a bubble bath or whatever it is that feels like 
self-care, self-love, helps you realize that it was over, helps your body shift to a different space, you know, allows you to move any kind of negative energy, any kind of like heightened cortisol out of your body and shift into a more grounded, centered place. You know, that whole self-care process after the hard conversation, I think, is super important. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And the last thing that I wanted to talk about was just, you know, coming out to kids. I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. I mean, and I've certainly heard a lot of stories. Again, most swingers that I know do not come out to their kids. But folks that are poly and have other lovers, I think a lot of times they do end up coming out to their kids. You know, I, I think... Elizabeth Chef's book, The Polyamorous Next Door, is a great reference. One of the first things that Chef says is that the kids are all right. Looking at the results of her 15-year ethnographic study of polyamorous families with children, she says, these children seem remarkably articulate, intelligent, self-confident, and well-adjusted. The children in these families appear to be thriving with the plentiful resources and adult attention these families provide. Yeah, I agree. You know, when I was reading that book, one of the things it said was that like most of the kids really loved that, like being in like especially a poly household where there's more than one adult, like the kids never felt lonely. And the main thing that they would complain about is that if they were trying to get away with something, it was almost impossible <laughs> to get away with something because there's, there's so many watching, adults. Asking questions. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. That was their only thing. And then they also talked about how like for kids that don't want it really revealed to other classmates, it's actually not hard because there's so many divorced parents that have step parents and stuff. The kid can just go, oh, yeah, that's my other dad. And other children won't think anything of it is what she said. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you think about, too, the nuclear family and I'm Gen X and you hear this also from millennials and Gen Z like parents were spread too thin. They were not around. They, you know, kids were kind of left to their own devices. And what, you know, with us, it was latchkey kids and after school, you know, specials. And for Gen Z, it's like they're on the computer, you know, but it's like, yeah, it takes a village these days. It really does. I see it a benefit to have more adults around being there for those kids and keeping each other in check. Like, hey, you were kind of like snappy at the kid the other day. How do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And especially in this, in this age where more and more people are just on screens all day to have a larger household where kids are actually around humans and not just a screen. I think it's probably healthy, you know, but we, we also have to think about the legal considerations of, of coming out, you know, like there has been situations where two people get divorced and one person accuses the other person of being non-monogamous and that, you know, there can be, you have to look at the laws in your state or consider the cultural climate of your state because there has been ha- bad things that have happened in terms of, you know, divorce settlements and things that involve children because somebody is, you know, one of the parents is non-monogamous, right. you know? Yeah, for me, it was more concern about school or other parents or other friends casting judgments 
And then that reflecting on my kid, like my kid being made fun of or, you know, that sort of thing. So like, you know, just general without divulging like personal stuff against my kid's consent, but just like the general gist of how things went with me was it was on a need to know basis, even though, yes, I my partner and I have relationships outside of our relationship. It was never something where someone was like, going to move in with us with their kids and we'll all raise the family together. So it's like, OK, you don't need to know. Right. And then you don't need to know that the summer picnics we go to with all our friends and their kids, they're actually our partners. You don't need to know that because that would be weird, like for them to be looking at these people like my mom has sex with these people. Why would I tell that to my kid? Right. Uh, Especially when they're younger. Right. And then as they got older, because they grew up in a sex positive household, we talked about non-monogamy. We talked about different types of relationships and identity. So it wasn't foreign to them that non-monogamy was out there, you know? And then as things became age appropriate, you know, it's like, oh, yes, you know, we have other partners. But that wasn't until they were older. I would say they were probably mm, middle school, maybe early high school, like that sort of. But again, it was very like need to know basis. I'm not going to divulge details to you. I'm not going to tell you who I'm not going to. You know what I mean? And then as things progressed and like, yeah, we would have a partner come visit. Yeah, we would say, okay, that's a partner. But we also talked about, you know, because kids get like a little weirded out about like, ooh, sex. Even my kids, because kids like they don't want to think about their parents doing and, you know, as open minded as those kids can be. The last thing they want to do is talk to their parents about sex or imagine their parents and set like it's like, oh, my God, no, like none of us want to imagine that. Right. Uh Yeah. Right. So they don't even want to know that stuff. Exactly. I think a lot of people on the outside think that we're having these conversations with our kids about like, see, so mommy and daddy had a threesome. No, we're not having those conversations. Like, no, absolutely not. Why would you do that? You know, and I think, you know, with our situation, I would talk to the kids about like kink and not again, not in a like sex way, but like here are the different reasons people do it. And sometimes people do it in a way that doesn't involve sex. It's completely just playful and platonic. So it's like as they got into high school, they realized like there's a huge spectrum of sexuality and identity. And, you know, so when they think of like, okay, this is, you know, one of our parents' partners, it may not necessarily be a sexual thing. It's all across the board. And now they're adults, you know what I mean? And they're like, whatever, cool. Like, it's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. Age appropriate. Like it's we're not telling the kids all these details like people think that it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You know, as these kids hear about all of this again, uh, the key word or key phrase is age appropriate. Right. And if you don't know what age appropriate is regarding relationships, etc. There's, you know, a lot of books out there that a person can find books, articles that can give you a sense of what is age appropriate for children. And then also, I think one of the gifts that children of um, non-monogamous parents often are getting is that they're being raised to not be ashamed of their sexuality and, and to be open-minded and to really know that they can find their 
authentic truth regarding relationships and human sexuality. Absolutely. That's such a gift in our society that's so laden with shame, especially sexual shame. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I also couple that with, at least with my kids and a lot of people that I know and I observe, it's like those kids are also raised with a very clear understanding of what consent is and not just in a sexual way, but in every facet of life with any person we come in contact with. And also a really solid understanding of emotional intelligence. And, you know, considering all of those things in our relationships with other people. How do other people feel? How, what do I have to think about when I am in different sorts of relationships with other people when it comes to like emotional consent and care? And that's everything. Right, right, right. And their little brains are learning to be able to hold that kind of diversity and to realize that life is not simple and humans are not simple. And there is like this great, vast diversity that it can be a joy to learn about. You know, it doesn't have to feel like work. It can be a joy. It's just a a larger paint palette that you have to work with now. Right. Yeah. So just wrapping up this episode, you know, for a lot of folks, their coming out journey is going to, you know, some people are going to have a lot of hard times. Other people are going to have experiences like I did that, that made them feel lighter and more open and joyful. And it's very personal. You have to decide what's right for you. And the speed that you want to come out and who you want to come out to. And, and we've covered some of the things to think about. But again, there's certainly other books and podcasts that talk about this. And it's okay to be scared. And if you can just find one person to divulge to, then, then now you have an anchor person that you can talk to about your further coming out process. Like the more you come out to folks, the more you have people that you can talk to about your further coming out process. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved this series, the six part series and listeners, like I said, if you haven't gone and listened to every Pete, go back and start from, you know, the first in the series, this has been Fabulous. So thank you, Kate. And thank you, everybody who's like written us emails and comments, like they're following along in the series and, you know, this and that has helped them. And thank you, thank you, thank you. So moving forward in the next episode, we're going to be shifting our focus to other types of non-normative love and connection and exploration in those realms. And what exactly will that be? Well, that's still cooking. So (laughs) it's a surprise. Anticipation. So be sure to hit the subscribe button so you can be sure not to miss it because I'll guarantee you it's going to be really fascinating because we get into some stuff. (laughs) But until then, (laughs) we will see you again soon when we once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Lurie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, 
Rob Barrett.